Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and our guests today are RAND researchers Dahlia Dasake, Linda Robinson, and Jeffrey Martini. And they will talk to us about their latest study and one that's already getting a lot of attention called Reimagining U.S. Strategy in the Middle East, Sustainable Partnerships, Strategic Investments. It's going to be a very full program with three fantastic guests. And let me begin by saying they're good friends and colleagues who I have learned an awful lot from over the years. Many of you may know I returned to All Monitor just over two years ago after serving as director of the RAND Center for Global Risk and Security, as well as international marketing manager for RAND's National Security Research Division. And I continue my affiliation with RAND as an adjunct political scientist. Dahlia Dasake, who is the lead author of this report, is a senior political scientist at RAND, a Wilson Center fellow, and a former director of the RAND Center for Middle East Public Policy. Linda Robinson is the current director of the Center for Middle East Public Policy and a senior international defense researcher at RAND and a best-selling author. And Jeffrey Martini is senior Middle East researcher at RAND where he works on political and security issues in the Arab world. He also served for a time at the State Department looking at North Africa issues. My conversation with Dahlia Dasake Linda Robinson and Jeffrey Martini about reimagining U.S. strategy in the Middle East begins now. Dahlia, Linda, Jeff, welcome to On the Middle East. Thanks, Andrew. Great to be with you, Andrew. Let's get right into it. You all have released an incredibly timely RAND report on U.S. policy in the Middle East. And one of the many things I like about the report is that you put everything on the table regarding U.S. policy. You challenge long-held assumptions and suggest new metrics to evaluate aid and partnerships. And what jumps out at me is that how you approach this topic in this region could really be a template for to be applied to U.S. foreign policy and other regions more broadly. Dahlia, could you tell us a little about the origins of the report and how you all came to what you came to in putting this together? Yeah, well, thanks again so much, Andrew, for spending the time to read it. And um, and you're right, it is a comprehensive report. And we, we do hope it's applied not just to the Middle East, but kind of shakes up thinking uh, more globally. Uh, but what really uh, led us to engage in this is, you know, recognizing this frustration with longstanding policies decade after decade across administrations that just don't seem to be uh, producing great results for the region, uh, for U.S. interest. Uh, and there's also recognition that we have other priorities today. Uh, we have, you know, growing attention on the great power competition with Russia and China in particular. We have all these domestic pressures here at home, economic pressures, of course, the pandemic. So we really thought this is a good moment to step back, 
think strategically about what might be a smarter way to deal with this region where we don't keep producing the same poor results again and again without really rethinking, as you said, our basic assumptions of what's driving us in this region and in particular rethinking what we call um, legacy thinking and investments that we frankly believe were designed for a different era. Jeff, let me ask about the approach to partnerships in the study. Help us understand the metrics you employ and how your approach in the report would lead to changes in US policy and practice regarding our longstanding partnerships in the Middle East. Sure, Andrew, thanks for that. So sort of beginning with our critique and, and picking up where Dahlia left off, we really see legacy consider driving U.S. relationships with partners. And so to give you a couple of examples, if you look at uh, the way that the U.S. manages its partnerships with Egypt, with Jordan, with Israel, what we call the big three in this report, because they're the big three recipients of U.S. foreign military financing, what we see is the United States is underwriting a piece which is self-perpetuating. You know, fortunately, we're not in an era in which there's a risk of interstate wars between Israel and the Arab states, and yet we continue to interact as if we are, as if these states are on the brink of war. So that's an example of kind of legacy considerations driving U.S. partnerships. Or if we look at the Arab Gulf states, you know, the traditional metric or the traditional logic has been, um, you know, the U.S. maintaining energy security in return for providing security guarantees to these states. And yet, as we all know, the United States is a major energy exporter today. And while there's some residual dependence on foreign oil, a lot of that is not from the Middle East. Or if we look at the major security threats in the region, you know, traditionally the United States was lined up to confront during the Cold War Soviet influence or later an expansionist Saddam Hussein's Iraq, or now, um, you know, this multidimensional threat posed by Iran. And yet, if we think about where is their security deficit in the region, what we actually see is domestic instability in the form of uprisings and disconnects in local labor markets and a lack of opportunity. That's what's driving instability, not this sort of narrow look at, at hard security. So what we are calling for is a major rethink of these partnerships in beginning with the core US interest in mind for this area, which is regional stability. So instead of thinking about lining up one block of states to counter another, or thinking about countering uh, you know, one of these threats, what we're thinking about is trying to build greater regional stability to lower the costs of US engagement in the region and thereby have a better return on investment. Jeff, let me follow up a, a little on that. So let's talk just for a second about, say, Saudi Arabia and Egypt, who are key pillars of U.S. partnership and security relationships in the region. Uh, there have been some issues in the news with Saudi Arabia and human rights, especially with the release of the ODNI report last week and, and the subsequent sanctions. But don't we need Saudi Arabia, say, to end the war in Yemen? which is the UN is called the greatest humanitarian catastrophe uh, in the world uh, to 
deter Iran, even assuming a, a best case outcome. We'll get into that in a few minutes regarding Iran policy. But we still need uh, partnerships, strong security partnerships for our deterrent posture and to play a key role in an Israeli-Palestinian peace if there were to be another spur of diplomacy. And then I might put Egypt in that mix too. They'll also be a key player in Israeli-Palestinian diplomacy. They're a key player in, in Libya, where we have some promising news, hopefully, uh, resolving the war there. So how, how do you see the ability to engage these longstanding partners, some of whom would I think drop a bit according to your uh, metrics, uh, but we still need them to do big things in the region. A point well taken, Andrew, and, and, and totally concur. What, what we're advocating for in this report is not an abandonment of traditional US partners. Um, and so uh, while we think there needs to be a major recalibration, there's room for the type of cooperation you've talked about. So on Saudi Arabia, we think the Biden administration has in the main gotten it right that um, rolling back the foreign terrorist organization designation uh, of the Houthis, um, you know, releasing the ODNI report, um, stopping uh, basically the United States enabling Saudi offensive strikes in Yemen by holding up foreign military sales that provide the munitions for those strikes and also urging uh, GCC, Gulf Cooperation Council reconciliation, those are the right steps. But it, it was also a nuanced approach in terms of reaffirming US support for the defense of Saudi Arabia by continuing to assist, for example, in the sharing of intelligence to counter cross-border threats from the Houthis that have taken the form of missiles and drones and these, um, these uh, basically these boats that are used as as uh, to, to ram other ships, and so that's the type of nuanced approach that we're calling for in this report. I will say there's an open question on the degree to which the administration is going to apply that logic more broadly to other states like Egypt. I think in your I, I was reading your Friday roll up in El Monitor and the the question question was posed, you know, is this going to be broader than Saudi Arabia? And to me, that's an open question. And Egypt is the obvious place where you would land this policy next. It's a country that, frankly, has declined in strategic importance for the United States. It's a country that's engaged in a lot of unhelpful behavior, even though, as you noted recently, it's been a little more helpful on Libya. And it's a country with serious human rights baggage that is not that different from Saudi Arabia. So the question I think for the administration is, is this sort of recalibration with Riyadh going to be applied more broadly? Jeff, one more quick question on, on partnerships is, uh, tell us about those countries who we should be engaging more with? Because I, I was also taken by that in the study that there are some other countries where you think the United States uh, has a role and a more effective engagement in, in the approach that you're advocating. Uh, some other countries might rise in terms of, of their ability uh, to work with the United States on, on our interests and our values. Yeah, we do argue, myself, Dahlia, Linda, and the other co-authors, that we really need to ramp up engagement with partners that meet positive criteria. And those positive criteria are countries that, that de-escalate regional conflict 
within the Arab Gulf states, Kuwait and Oman are probably the best examples and countries that pursue inclusive politics. Traditionally, uh, post Arab Spring, Tunisia was thought of in that category, although you know, they're, they're, they're facing a lot of domestic tumult right now, again. Um, but in general, what we advocate for is for those states that um, pursue inclusive politics, inclusive governance, that work to de-escalate um, regional conflict that are sort of unheralded counterterrorism partners of which the Lebanese armed forces, the LAF are, that there needs to be um, a greater uptick in US engagement with those states rather than this very narrow focus on a small set of traditional partners with a lot of the programming sort of pre-programmed, if you will. Let's turn to Iran. Dahlia, you've uh, written a lot about Iran over the years. You've done a lot of work in this area. There's a section of this report that is uh, talks about right-sizing Iran as an adver adversary and as a focus in U.S. policy. Tell us what you mean by that, and tell us what you think the Biden administration uh, should and could be doing uh, to advance policy toward Iran in a right-sized way, as you describe in your report? Yeah, well, um, I think uh, what, what we mean by that is that, um, and, and while this report is largely arguing for not just keeping with the what we call threatism paradigm, where you, we're always focused on what we're against, uh, but we also need to balance that with, you know, this more positive agenda the partners and policies that we can be supporting uh, that focus on the socioeconomic and governance challenges that really are the threats of the day. Um, but we're not naive about things. We understand that there are threats like Iran and challenges like Iran we need to deal with. So when we talk about right-sizing, it's really about putting the Iranian threat in perspective. Uh, and there, what we're talking about is, yes, it's a very serious regional concern and challenge uh, to US interests, to all of our regional partners. Uh, particularly its asymmetric capabilities in its missile development becoming much more accurate uh, and lethal, it, its uh, support for non-state uh, militia forces. We just saw the uh, consequences of that last week in Iraq. Uh, so we understand the challenges, but we do argue that there is pushback against Iran in this region. Iran faces limits. Uh, first of all, it's co conventionally incredibly weak, especially when you compare it to uh, some of the best military forces in the world. When you look at Israel, which is regularly containing Iran in Syria uh, with military strikes on, on a, a frequent basis. Uh, of course, the U.S. military is uh, the Iranian are no match for the U.S. military on any level. Uh, and then we have natural pushback from the neighborhood. Uh, a lot of frustration with Iranian interventions. Uh, the Syrian uh, conflict in particular has really undermined Iran's soft power influence. A uh, lot of um, nationalist sentiment in countries like Iraq and of course, in, even in Lebanon, which is, uh, these are the countries more traditionally in the Iranian camp, not to mention the Arab Gulf uh, interested in pushing back against the Iranian influence, though there's variation there. So we, we do think we have a lot to leverage um, and that we, can, we don't need direct confrontation with Iran to be able to contain this problem, which can be managed. Um, and in terms of, of current policy and, and where to you know, go, I, we understand there's the need for the near term 
uh, focus, uh, which which is absolutely right. Administration is right. You do need to deal, and President Biden has said this himself. You need to put a lid back on the Iranian nuclear program. It's not the only challenge, certainly. Uh, but if you don't contain that challenge, all the other challenges become much more difficult. So we do argue for a return to the JCPOA through multilateral diplomacy. That's the optimal way forward. Um, that's facing challenges at the moment, but it's still the best option. But we also um, supplement that with a longer term approach. A lot of what this report is about is thinking longer term, thinking bigger picture. And here we take the longer view that we need to think about how we deflate Iran's influence over time. And here we take a play from kind of the way we did things in the Cold War, where yes, we had military deterrence, but part of Kennan's containment was also about how you mellow Soviet activism over time and undermine the areas that the Soviets could capitalize on. So we, we, we look at this and we say, let's look at the neighborhood. Let's think about whether we can help create a better alternative. Let's focus on people in the region. Let's focus on accountability. Let's focus on governance. This would reduce the drivers that lead to the turmoil and instability that Iran is able to capitalize on. So that's just you know a few of the kind of key takeaways of what we're suggesting here in terms of our longer term approach. Today is March 1st. Uh, do you think we're going to see a return to the JCPOA anytime soon? Is that still on the table? And is a window closing as we get closer to a presidential election season in Iran? They have elections in June. Uh, I am increasingly worried. I am still caught as someone who does believe that the nuclear agreement is the best um, is the best option for containing this problem. It's not a perfect solution, but it's the best solution for now. And then we can build on it. So I think it's the right approach. I'm increasingly worried uh, because uh, I think there is a problem of mindset on both sides, believing that um, each may have more leverage than they actually do. Uh, of course, you have domestic politics on both sides that make this incredibly tricky. The Iranians have not been making it easy for the Biden administration uh, to give concessions. Uh, but there was, you know, maybe they were unrealistic expectations, but there were high expectations. You know, Biden himself on no, numerous occasions reiterated the U.S. would like to return to compliance with this agreement. Uh, the United States is out of compliance since uh, President Trump left the agreement in 2018. So the big question today is kind of who goes first? How do you get back to a compliance for compliance agreement? And then, then after that uh, is um, reinstated, you can move forward on other issues. Until you get that back, you're not going anywhere. So I, I think we have, um, I think we do have a time issue. It's not just related to the Iranian elections in June. Uh, it's related to the fact that right now uh, there is growing mistrust and frustration. I think uh, the Iranians are looking at the Biden team and they are starting to wonder, um, of course, this is, you know, they're, they're quite drastically different in, in policy orientation already, uh, but there is this perception in Tehran uh, that they're not clear that if they give concessions and go back to the nuclear deal, that's going to be enough. And so um, I think we are in a very delicate moment. Uh, my hope is that we do get back to the table quickly because the more we have this public posturing and the more we have this delay, uh, I think the more difficult it's going to be. Time is not on the side of restoring the JCPOA. Linda, there is a section in the report on Iraq as a pivotal player. Um, 
I can't think of anyone who knows Iraq and the security situation there as well as you do. You spent so much time there dealing with all the players and both in the coalition, American side, the Iraqi side. How do we deal with these challenges in Iraq, the pro-Iran militias, ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Iran? Tell us about what the report says uh, about Iraq as Iraq seems to gain uh, in your assessment as a key regional partner. Yes, well, it's a key focal point for sure. And what thank you for asking uh, how we approach Iraq in this report, and then we can address what the, the latest Biden administration actions have been the first military action they've undertaken. But the way we uh, look at Iraq is a pivotal player for a number of reasons. Uh, around Iran, of course, next door, uh, Iraq has been a venue for increasing Iranian influence, and it will, Iran will undoubtedly have substantial ties uh, with its neighbor no matter what. But the concern has been uh, creeping influence and domination in a way that compromises Iraqi sovereignty. Number two, and where the U.S. focus has been so heavily in the last uh, decade and more, is is the cradle, really, of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. And really, I view Iraq as the birthplace. It grew out of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, it was the venue for much of the action in the recent years to dislodge ISIS from uh, its physical caliphate straddling Iraq and Syria, massive swaths of territory. And the aftermath of that is very important because, as you well know, uh, when the shooting stops, it doesn't necessarily mean the fight is over. There's still a million Iraqis displaced within Iraq, living in very parlous conditions. There are a large number of Iraqis detained in Syria and in camp in Syria, uh, there's been uh, really a languishing effort to rebuild key areas like Mosul of, of all major city in Iraq. But more broadly than that, there's a question about Iraq as a major fifth largest oil uh, reserves in the world, a major player in the region, and thus a key factor in stability or instability. And that brings us to this issue of its kind of arrested development, if you will. It's been struggling despite its resources to provide basic services to its population. It was the venue of one of the Arab Spring II popular protests really swept up uh, much of the country uh, in protest test that was really only tamped down a by COVID, but B by some unfortunate, very uh, bloody repression of those uh, protests. The country at bottom needs serious economic and political reform. And if it isn't able to do that uh, in the near future, uh, it's going to have extremely uh, bad effects for not just the country, but the region. So we see a need, um, as Dali was saying, to move away from a narrow threatism focus, but it means using a different an approach to Iraq that recognizes all of these intersecting U.S. interests, continue 
continue with the global coalition uh, to defeat ISIS, but focus really away from the military aspects to the things that are really going to prevent the resurgence of ISIS. And that includes things like the counter-propaganda effort, because most of these, uh, the U.S. intel community has assessed that it's really the inspired attacks through social media that represents the main uh, threat to us. There's a cooperative counter threat finance effort that has uh, been built up over years and also a very robust um, law enforcement and border control cooperation. And these are all things that need conti to continue. And then we have a dwindling number of troops there. There are now about 2,500 and the Biden administration will decide what force level it deems is necessary. And of course, the Iraqis were there by the Iraqis invitation they will determine what they would like. Uh, but I think it's very important to get that right. Too little, and you're not going to be able to accomplish those long-term security cooperation missions. And we, while we've expended a huge amount of blood and treasure there, lots of treasure trying to build Iraqi security forces, there's really a mixed uh, bag there. Some have been very effective, some less so. And we need to, uh, I think, find that Goldilocks right balance there. Linda, one of the outcomes of, of the protest, uh, Prime Minister Adel Abdelmati uh, resigned uh, after the security forces, as you mentioned, had um, killed and cracked down on protesters. And one of the outcomes was Mustafa Al-Khadami becoming prime minister. He's working with President Barham Saleh. And they're, they're trying to implement a reform program. They're trying uh, to bridge that gap uh, between good governance and the demands of Iraq's youth cohort who want jobs and want a better future. The economic situation is so difficult. Uh, how can the U.S. and the international community help Iraq and help the leadership there strengthen their commitment and path to economic reform so that some of the demands and needs of those protesters begin to be met? Thank you. Yes. And I recognize Mustafa Al-Khadami is well known to you and a former Al-Monitor um, writer. We we uh, have to see how difficult Iraq's recent situation situation has been the oil price drops and the pandemic caused the GDP to shrink by 10%. And then there are the fundamental uh, issues there. I was so struck when the Iraqi Minister of Finance came to Washington last summer and publicly pleaded with the US to help lobby for conditionality in the IMF uh, lending they were looking for to really bolster their efforts to reform the system. And this is the, the real, despite the prime ministers and the president Barham's efforts and support for reform, the parliamentary system is extremely difficult uh, to work with. There'll be elections, I think they're now planned for October, uh, finally, of, of this year. Um, and it's a matter of building that coalition within that parliamentary system. And I think the U.S. can play a pivotal role, making clear that it is supportive of these measures. And, and really, what our major theme of this report is pivoting away from military focus 
practice solutions, the, the labor unemployment, the youth unemployment rates, the highest sub-public sector employment, unfavorable climates for private sector entrepreneurship. These are fundamental things that are going to make the difference between the region and Iraq in particular moving ahead or not. And so whereas the previous administration had really uh, undertaken a number of kind of punitive measures against uh, Iraq and drawn down its embassy personnel. Um, I think that there's a case to be made that some significant support to this very constructive government that's currently in power uh, to shore it up against some of the Iranian actions against it in violation of its sovereignty and also against some of the spoiling actors within the parliament uh, might just make the difference there. But at the end of the day, let's be clear. I mean, Iraq has to be the one to take the hard steps. And it does have some very tough decisions it's got to make to bring its budget into balance, to provide electricity for people. This is one of these, you know, ongoing, just it's, it, it's, it's really unconscionable that a country of this wealth and education cannot provide basic electricity and water for its population. The report has a section on U.S. policy toward Russia and China or how it needs to calibrate its Middle East policy, taking into account Russia and China as uh, adversaries. But you also talk about areas of cooperation between these two powers. For uh, any of you who wants to take this one, uh, explain what the U.S. objectives should be in the region as we pursue the interests if you've been describing them with regard to our main adversaries globally, Russia and China. Yeah, and we do uh, we do tackle the issue. I don't think you can have a, a strategy report on any region of the world today without taking on the, the question of particularly about China. Uh, but we, we deal with both global competitors, Russia and China. Uh, and what we assess here, and I, there's also I want to recommend other terrific RAND work in this area, very good studies, which uh, suggest out of the two of the, the two global uh, competitors, China is by far and beyond uh, the, the, the more long-term and more serious strategic competitor uh, by almost any measure. But in the Middle East, Russia still is a significant concern, uh, still playing in the region in, in some zero-sum ways, uh, wanting to keep the status quo, keep the U.S. down um, is the perception at least. Uh, and so especially its activity in Syria was, a, I think, a very good example of that. China is much more focused on its economic interest, on the Belt and Road Initiative and, and using the Middle East uh, from that perspective. Uh, although some of its economic and infrastructure development are quite worrying, especially when it comes to the buildup of cities and surveillance technologies and technology transfer in general. Those are all things that we're, we're quite worried about. Uh, but the way the way we look at it is that um, we do we do acknowledge and outline many of these growing roles for both Russia and China in the Middle East, um, as different as they are. Uh, and that this is a concern, but we also highlight some of the limits both of these countries face. Uh, they have to straddle themselves, relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia. China is still quite vulnerable. It imports 40% of its oil from the region. Uh, and we also argue that the U.S. still maintains some advantages, that, you know, U.S. products, U.S. Uh, military goods are still sought after or still preferred, and that we can use that leverage. But the, I think the biggest takeaway in our assessment 
is that we don't think that this region where we know there's going to be competition, but just like with the threat as a mindset of whether it was the Soviet Union, Arab nationalists, now Iran, you know, we don't need to get into that mindset of every problem in the Middle East needs to be looked at through the prism of great power competition. We argue against moving to a Cold War like competition with Russia and China in the Middle East. And as you mentioned, we think there may even be productive areas where we can cooperate. There are areas where we cannot and where um, their activity does infringe on our interests. But for example, on questions like nonproliferation, uh, nobody in the region, including Russia and China, wants a nuclear armed Iran. They are parties to the JCPOA and that is an area we can usefully cooperate. Uh, China does not have an interest in regional instability and continued conflict. Uh, to get its oil out of this region, it needs things to stay calm. So I think, you know, we can be looking for some of those areas of common interest, uh, but it will be harder to do that if we just reduce the region uh, to this notion that everything is about how we can confront and diminish uh, Chinese and, and Russian power. Let me ask uh, just a quick follow-up on that. Our does your report, uh, or to what degree does your report assess that if the U.S. steps back, that Russia and China could step in and increase their influence um, in a meaningful way? For example, uh, in the Egypt, Egypt purchases arms from Russia. Uh, in the Gulf, we see an increased interest in the Chinese model of business and development. And you, you talk about the Belt and Road Initiative. And in Turkey, probably most in the news, the purchase of the S-400 missile defense system and what's that done uh, or contributed to uh, the difficulties in U.S.-Turkish relations. Um, how concerned are we about that? Or is, are those in, in your score manageable concerns? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Everything in this region is about trade-offs. Uh, just like we are arguing for diversifying our partnerships, as Jeff outlined, um, we know that our regional partners have been, this isn't a new thing, they've been diversifying their partnerships for some time. And that's always the risk is that this will, you know, that if we don't sell it, that's the often the argument against these um, massive, uh, the, the arguments, including those that we make in the report, that this uh, massive transfer of arms sales uh, to, to Arab Gulf states in particular are not conducive to regional stability. The argument is, but if we don't sell them, someone else will. And we've been hearing that for so many years. So that is a trade-off because we already see these states closer um, for a variety of reasons, but especially because of the oil interest when it comes to China. Uh, China is still the most dependent on the region. And as Jeff uh, alluded, I think uh, mentioned, we are now um, no longer dependent on this region for import. We're actually now an oil exporter, exporting state. So, um, you know, that's always a risk. Our feeling is that that can be managed, uh, that we still, um, you know, I, that we also need to be thinking about taking leadership roles because if the goal is to reduce regional instability and conflict, uh, we need to be saying, uh, how can we not just compete for who can, can uh, send more and more arms to this region, but how can we start thinking about a different paradigm and moving away from this? So some of the things we allude to in the report, for example, is thinking back to when President Bush in the early 90s after the first Gulf War called for moratorium on arms sales. We need to start getting creative and stop getting back into the same cycle 
cycles of the past. And so um, we acknowledge that that's always a risk, but that, uh, but the cost of doing business as we are now have been enormous and that we need to have a different cost benefit calculus. Uh, Jeff may want to weigh in here in terms of the specific partnerships uh, with uh, Egypt, I think you were asked about. Jeff, go ahead, please. Thank you, Andrew. I could jump in for just a minute and say, you know, I think Dolly hit the right points, which are, you know, regardless of how the United States engages, some partners are diversifying. I think, Andrew, you alluded to the Su-35, the advanced fighter aircraft that Egypt is purchasing from Russia. The Arab Gulf partners had previously been interested in getting lethal drones from China. And so some of that, I think, is inevitable regardless of what the United States does. The real risk, though, is that every new announcement from the Belt and Road Initiative, every new announcement by China of some investment in a port leads the United States to double down on business as usual. And that's what we want to avoid. We want to avoid Russia or China being able to basically keep the United States with these legacy-based partnerships by simply making a new announcement that they're you know, made slight inroads here, made slight inroads there. We need to revisit whether these relationships are advancing U.S. interests. And just because China announces that it's going to buy some com commercial port access here shouldn't keep the United States from revisiting whether the relationships as they're currently constructed really advance Washington's interests. So Linda, last question. You talk about recalibrating policy tools in the study, and you talk about diplomacy, economic aid, force posture, how to emphasize non-military over military, or to give greater priority to non-military means. How, do, how can the U.S., in undertaking that shift, address the demands of the youth, the protesters, to achieve a better life, to uh, demand and, and get good governance from their countries, to have uh, jobs and better education. What can the U.S. be doing in this recalibration of tools to reach out to that cohort that we haven't done so far? This is uh, just, I think, so important as the crux of our report. Um, and it shouldn't be interpreted that we're pivoting away from the region or trying to exact punitive uh, measures. If you have a situation where 80% of your aid is going to military-focused uh, programs, that on its face is, is just unbalanced. And what you gain by shifting that balance is really addressing these major, major fundamental conditions in the region, which is what the people of the region need and want. And the youth, I believe, were at this very uh, significant point. It's 10 years after the Arab Spring. There are more activists in jail than at any time since those uprisings. The people in Iraq and Lebanon have come out in force. There are people that really, I think the youth of the region are not going to indefinitely tolerate the conditions they're living in. 60% uh, of the population is un under uh, the age of 25. Uh, highest youth unemployment in the world. Women and girls face more gender exclusion than anywhere else. There's a just severe mismatch between skills and jobs in the job market. 
uh, and I think that the um, issue about statism, you know, the model or the bargain uh, that the uh, governments of the region have for long struck. If it, we will get provide you jobs in exchange for quiescence, that's really broken down likely permanently as oil revenues uh, decline and the traditional model doesn't work. So what U.S. programming can do is help with those fundamental economic reforms that need to occur. And it's not just about aid, things like trade and investment treaties, people-to-people uh, -people programs, uh, education, and we do have to, I think, elevate the humanitarian aid component because the region and the world has never seen this um, severe and refugee and displacement uh, crisis. And the people suffering is, is just, it's front and center for people who follow uh, I'll monitor, but I think there has been an obscuring of just how much human suffering there is. One thing I want to point out on the positive side, uh, less people fear that aid is going to poor uh, results. U.S. Congress has actually been systematically increasing its requests that programs undergo rigorous assessment, monitoring, and evaluation. And that has been happening, but it needs to be rigorously enforced. And then once those assessments are available, they need to be used to make make decisions about further flows of aid. The other thing that's happened, Congress last year passed the Global Fragility Act. And this is really a second of two parts of, of a new model for the US to dispense assistance and particularly stabilization assistance. And it requires a more focused and coordinated approach that avoids the overspending and waste of the previous years. I think that stabilization got a very bad name with the overspending in both Iraq and Afghanistan. And in fact, much of that went to fuel corruption. So there's a very uh, strong set of recommendations in the report about how to improve the delivery of those uh, programs and to really coordinate with our multilateral and bilateral partners uh, so that what other countries are doing, uh, we have a combined effect together. Well said, and thank you for raising that. It's a very, very important part of your study. And um, let me just conclude by saying, Dahlia, Linda, Jeff, this has been great. Your RAND uh, power trio, as it were, and the report lives up to the billing. It's a must read. Thank you for joining us today and discussing it with us on, on the Middle East. Thank you so much, Andrew. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Andrew. We appreciate the opportunity. Thanks again, Andrew. We will return after this short break. I'm Ben Kaspit, I'll monitor veteran columnist reporting from Israel, one of the world's major news and action suppliers of all times, comparing to its tiny size. I've been covering and analyzing the political, diplomatic, and military arenas in Israel for over 34 years. My best-selling biography, The Netanyahu Years, was out two years ago. I covered seven prime ministers, one major war, two intifadas, one prime minister's assassination, two and a half peace treaties, four military operations in Gaza, and it's not letting up anytime soon. I'm glad to invite you to On Israel, our brand new podcast, where we will discuss major events in Israel and its surroundings, 
talk to decision makers, leaders, and analysts, and try to understand the chaos that comes with the territory of Israel and the Middle East. You will never have a dull moment with us. See you soon here on Israel Al Monitor. That was a fantastic conversation with Dahlia, Linda, and Jeff. They have given us a lot to think about, including the importance of challenging long-held assumptions, employing metrics and methodologies to better understand the value of partnerships and outcomes, and how the tools of diplomacy can be used to reach and engage that next generation of Arab youth who are seeking a better future and a new social contract with the governing classes in the region. Thanks to our production team of Phil Calabro of El Monitor and Beowulf Rochlin of Two Square Media Productions. And thanks to all of you for listening today. We will return next week. And in the meantime, please sign up for this and our other El Monitor podcast on Israel at your favorite podcast platform. Thank you.